Hello, and welcome to another edition of IDS Talks. My name is Jonathan Sachs, Chief Revenue Officer at IDS. And today we're joined by Bill Taylor to talk about IDS's Special Investigations Unit, a unit that Bill has built as a director here at IDS. Welcome, Bill. Hey, Jonathan. Good to be here. Um, so let's let's start at the beginning. Um, <laughs> can you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how it shaped your building of IDS's Special Investigations Unit to now be referred to as SIU through the remainder of our podcast? <laughs> at the risk of boring everybody, I, I will. Um, I've had a 35-year career as a trial lawyer, litigator, investigator, um, and military intelli intelligence uh, prisoner of war interrogator. Started uh, 35 years ago as a POW interrogator and military intelligence an analyst in the U.S. Army. Uh, my next job was as a defense in investigator for a criminal defense law firm in Denver, Colorado. Continued working, the, doing the same work on death cases for a civil rights organization. Then I went to law school and became a trial lawyer and a litigator. And over my uh, career was both a uh, local, state, and federal prosecutor and a criminal defense attorney. About uh, 11 plus years as a prosecutor, approximately 20 years as a criminal defense lawyer, conducting all kinds of investigations, grand jury investigations, corporate internal investigations, and then specializing in digital investigations in the context of malicious intrusions and cybersecurity incidents at companies, uh, both through my own digital forensics and analytics companies and now with IDS. And the through line through all of that is I have been for 35 years a fact finder, an investigator. Uh, and all of that culminates in the SIU, which I've had the pleasure of building for IDS over the past year and a half since I arrived. So let's let's get into that then. So I understand what SIU means, um, but I only learned it over the past year and a half, as you and I have, have talked about it. And by the way, a uh, little, uh, little tidbit. If you're ever talking to Bill Taylor, watch out for the fifth question. Count. If you get to the fifth question and you give him an answer to that fifth question, Bill Taylor has you. Um, for another would podcast. Like to, would you like no, me to explain no, that, John? No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's keep people... Uh, fine. All right. Go ahead and explain it. And then that we're going to talk from... about... And then we're going to talk about the SIU offering. That comes from uh, prisoner of war interrogation and under uh, international law and under U.S. military's code of conduct. If you're ever captured, you are required to answer four questions, name, rank, date of birth, serial number. You are not permitted to answer the fifth question, which is anything else. And as a war prisoner interrogator, after we were taught to break sources who didn't want to talk to us, we wanted them to answer the fifth question, because once you've answered the fifth question, which is anything other than what you're required to give, then we've got you. And for the record, I do not feel like when you and I have conversations, Bill, that I'm being interrogated or that I am counting the questions on my fingers until I hit four and then I shut down. So I just uh, but it was a really interesting piece of information that Bill has shared with me over over our time working together. OK, but the podcast is not about interrogation by Bill Taylor. It is about SIU. So what is IDS's SIU offering? So the Special Investigations Unit uh, at IDS is, first and foremost, a multidisciplinary team. Uh, I may lead it, but it is composed of subject matter experts across IDS's service lines and spanning both the corporate data continuum and the electronic discovery reference model. 
So we have investigators. In some instances, we bring in private um, private investigators who are licensed to do things that licensure is required for. Then we bring in forensics experts to gather data. Then we bring in our both our forensics lab and our discovery service consultants to process data. Then we bring in data analysts, both unstructured data and structured data, to investigate the story that is told by both structured data and unstructured data. And then uh, goes all the way to presentation of evidence at uh, legal proceedings, including trials. So first and foremost, it is a multidisciplinary team spanning all of the expertise across IDS's lines. Second, it is a concept, and it is a concept driven by investigative imperatives that I have seen in my 35 years as a litigator, trial lawyer, and corporate internal investigator, driven by both uh, the change in the evidentiary paradigm that I've witnessed as a trial lawyer, going from documents on paper, a 5,000-year-old technology, which lawyers are the masters of, to data, which lawyers are not yet the masters of, which is so complex and so uh, such a uh, specific field of knowledge that it requires outside experts to help lawyers and to help courts understand um, under, understand the evidence. And it's driven by the imperative for speed. And I'll talk a little bit more about why why speed is important in this context. Um, but um, that's that's what this is. It's a multidisciplinary team prepared to move as quickly as possible to capture forensically, that is for use in court, all data that is essential to a case and that is um, important to lawyers and risk managers at client corporations and at outside outside law firms to um, make to devise strategies uh, to manage risk and to remediate problems that resulted in the risk in the first place. So, Bill, that that sounds, though, a lot like. Many other types of matters that what you've described is important to lawyers handling those matters. It could be a commercial litigation. It could be an employment matter. So what is it that's special about SIU or this concept of operations that you just laid out? So I think the, the critical difference here is the need for speed. And all of the paradigms that you just talked about are, are paradigms uh, in which SIU's core competencies, the multidisciplinary team concept, uh, and the you know the the expertise across all lines of evidentiary sorry electronic evidence um, can be utilized. But SIU is designed first and foremost to respond to exigent circumstances that arise in the life of a corporation. Things like service of search warrants, grand jury subpoenas, uh, civil or criminal investigative demands, knocks on the door from federal agents at the C-suite um, officer's house. You know, in 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 the evening. Those those kinds of um, of events that catalyze a corporate internal investigative response because the corporation has a duty, if it has a mature and well functioning program for compliance and ethics, to investigate, to investigate potential violations of law, breaches of policy, uh, or sometimes just when the corporate when the corporation is a victim itself of some third party actor or some insider threat. Again, it's the need for speed. And I'll talk right now, um, if you don't mind, about the three imperatives. The three imperatives that call for speed are, in my opinion, first, the nature of the evidence, in this case, the nature of the data. And the most important aspect of that nature is that it is ephemeral. If you do not capture it, it has a tendency to disappear. Some data is stored for short periods of time in corporate data systems. 
The next is the nature of the duty that arises either on the part of corporate fiduciaries or on the part of counsel. And the, there is a duty to both look into matters that affect the compliance posture, the ethics posture um, of the of the corporate of corporate activity. And also, when, when an event has occurred which gives rise to belief that there may be litigation, obviously, there is a duty to preserve evidence for potential litigation. So first, nature of data. Second, the nature of the duty. And that's both on the part of outside counsel, inside um, counsel, uh, and of, um, of corporate fiduciaries um, to, to do right by their shareholders. And the third is the nature of, of decision-making. And that's decision-making generally. What we are attempting to do with SIU is to forensically capture data as quickly as possible. For, to satisfy all three imperatives, but decision-making is particularly worth uh, paying attention to here. It is important that corporate officials and corporate counsel gain insight into the nature of legal risks or other risks that are presented to them um, or their client organization as quickly as possible. The more you know, and the sooner you know it, the better able you are to devise strategies, tactics, and remedial measures to manage that risk. Um, I like to, I'm a chess player, and <clears throat> you know one of the imperatives in chess is speed. The reason, the way that you build speed in, in playing chess is you have a good position on the board. It doesn't take you three moves to get a piece from one part of the board to another part of the, part of the board. If you control the center of the board, you can move once through the center of the board. So using that concept and applying it to uh, investigations, you want to set up um, good structures for gathering information, for processing information, for understanding information, and you want to do it as quickly as possible. As Bobby Fischer, one of my favorite chess players, like to say, good tactics flow from superior position. Yeah. Get organized early, gather, gather whatever data you can. And um, the earlier you know information about the nature of the risk, the better able you are to uh, devise tactics and strategies to manage that risk. Interesting. Uh, sadly, I do not play chess well, so you will not be uh, seeing me with my board asking you to play a game. Checkers, maybe a little better, but... Um, uh, let me ask you this, Bill. You, you talk about data sources. You talk about the importance of it. Um, it, it. It can go away quickly, capture it. And, and I know that some of our listeners are probably thinking, well, that makes sense. There's emails. There could be other Word docs, Excel files that could be deleted. I could delete text messages, perhaps. But there's another arena that SIU covers. Um, and I was involved in part of it when I did some OSINT research and investigation. And so... Um, Let's let's focus on that bit. So for those who might not know what even OSINT is or these other potential areas of data or information that should be looked into, let's let's move on to that topic. Okay. Happy to talk about that. And and really OSINT is a fabulous example of uh, exploiting, capturing and exploiting information, all available information at the beginning of an investigation in order to understand the nature of the risk and in order to devise strategies for managing it. OSINT is a term that was invented by the intelligence community in the United States, and it just stands for open source intelligence. And there are lots of other kinds of intelligence. When I was a war prisoner interrogator, I was in military intelligence, but I was in the human, human intelligence um, uh, segment of, of the intelligence community. OSINT um, has come to mean now, both in, in uh, military intelligence circles, law enforcement circles, but also in the private economy, the harvesting, gathering, harvesting, and analysis of open source information, mostly from the public internet, but not just from the public internet, from public uh, entities who, who provide information, U.S. government and, and state and local governments as well who provide information. 
the the concept of OSINT as applied in the Special Investigations Unit um, context is OSINT um, is a fabulous way to get ready to begin to gather information from individual witnesses at companies. And when internal investigations are commenced by corporations, generally they start with gathering information from inside the company about the nature of the problem based on whatever hints may appear, whatever tea leaves may be available to counsel, either in-house counsel or outside counsel about the nature of the problem, then focusing on people inside the company who may be in the vortex in the middle of the of the conduct, which is either in subject of investigation by outside entities, like government entities, or the subject of investigation in-house. And uh, one of the things that you want to do, and this, this goes back to my days as a war prisoner interrogator, you know, there's a there's a maxim, which, by the way, is like all maxims is sometimes not true. But the maxim is that, you know, in trial, you never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. In fact, it's OK to ask questions you don't know the answer to so long as you don't care what the answer is. In the context of a special investigation unit investigation, you want to know at least what is publicly available. Um, and what is privately available from the client about the people that you're going to go talk to. And the reason that you want to know that is you want to be able to control those interviews. I'm going to resist the temptation to call them interrogations. Uh, but you want to control those interviews and you want to control the witness. Um, witness control is a huge part of trials. It's a huge part of depositions. It's also a huge part of investigations. And I, I know some lawyers think, look, I'm just going to go ask questions and I'm going to find out what this is about. And the best, fastest way to get into this is just to ask witnesses questions. The problem with that is that if witnesses lie to you, and I'll give you a you know a glimpse into the secret um, work of, of trials, witnesses lie, Jonathan, and they lie no. all the time. Shocker. They lie not under oath. They lie under oath. And by the way, they lie in documents that they write, you know, to quote the movie Braveheart. Those were lies when you first wrote them, right? And if you actually have intelligence on a source, on a, a human being that you're going to go um, uh, question during an investigation, you can ask control questions. Control question is nothing more than a question you already know the answer to. And if you ask if you ask a question you already know the answer to, and the witness tells you something that you know is not the answer, that is an opportunity essentially to discipline the witness and let the witness know that you know something about what you're talking about. You are not, um, it, it, the witness is not in a position where he or she is going to be able to lie to you with impunity. And that can be very important, particularly downstream. Corporate witnesses in internal investigations that lie to counsel and lie to investigators working with counsel on the investigations create huge problems for themselves, and they create huge problems for uh, for the corporation. In the context of co corporate internal investigations where there is some risk of either civil or criminal penalties from the government, a witness who lies to an internal investigator can forever destroy their credibility and therefore their value to the government if the government intends to proceed with enforcement action um, later on. So you do not want people lying to you in the context of internal investigations. And I will tell you, I have conducted hundreds of internal investigations at corporations um, in my career. And it is the rare case where somebody, if not most of the witnesses, lie to you about the things that they are most sensitive about. So OSINT is a beautiful way, coupled with the information you can get from the client prior to walking into the room and beginning to, to talk to a witness, to put some boundaries in place, you know, to put up the um, to put up the fences that keep the witness from freely associating and lying to you about what happened. I've had experiences where my team has gone in with the benefit of open source intelligence, with the benefit of 
uh, of information from uh, client stakeholders, um, you know, in various departments. And with the benefit of early assays of corporate communications, we walked into interviews, the witnesses lied, the lawyer conducting the investiga investigation or the interview uh, slides a copy of an email across the desk to the witness. The witness says, oh, well, I, okay, well, let me explain my answer. I see you have that email. Let me explain the answer I just gave. Then they start lying again. You slide the next um, email across the desk. The lawyer looks at it, or sorry, the witness looks at it and says, oh, well, gosh, you know, um, this is much more complex. Let me try and explain. Next question, next lie. Third email goes gets slid across the table and the witness says, well, gosh, since you know the truth already, I might as well tell you everything. And by the way, you don't have to know everything. Control questions are just some things that you are, some questions you were able to ask that you already know the answer to that help keep the witness inside the court. Got it. All right. So I know OSINT is one part of it. Um, there is also dark web and deep nets. Yeah. So that actually describes segments of open source intelligence oh. that can be gathered. So the, the web consists of three layers, if you will, surface layer, which everybody can go look at using uh, browsers like, um, like Explorer, browsers like Edge. Um, and uh, that's publicly available information. Anybody can get, just do it, just do a Google search, just Google dork, right? Um, the term that I very much like used by um, both uh, cybersecurity experts and by open source intelligence um, searchers. Then there's the deep web. And generally what the deep web consists of is data repositories. And there is some kind of a paywall or a friend wall. There's a barrier to entry and you need to have um, privileges to get inside to look at the data stored there. And then the third layer is the dark net or the dark web. And that's what a lot of people think is, you know, the scary part of the web. Um, it's actually the internet itself. And, you know, when uh, uh, and, and all of the data is there, you know, connected across the Internet. And what most people don't understand is when they're searching Google, they're not actually searching the Internet. They're searching searching Google's curated content drawn from the Internet. And that's good because um, on the dark net, you will find all kinds of malware and crimeware that could infect your computer if you're out there not doing it um, appropriately or carefully, um, which will, you know, prevent your computer from ever working again um, after you've gone to the dark net. So we search all three layers when appropriate for information about events and about people that we are uh, investigating. Okay. So, so now, thank you for laying all of this out. You have a situation where the client needs to move quickly. So perfect for SIU collecting data, and I'm going to give you some example sources, but collecting data that then need to be analyzed. So as the investigator doing the analysis, you've got emails, loose data files, stuff from the internet, stuff from databases. So you've got essentially unstructured data and structured data. Right. How how does the SIU team approach what look to be two different type of not data sources, but two pools of data that are structured differently? Yeah. So so if you think about data and you think about documents, for example, what what is a document? actually. And I'm not talking about a paper document, the old evidentiary paradigm, you know, 5,000 years ago when paper was invented. I'm talking about a document, <clears throat> quote, in air quotes, document that somebody composes on their computer at work. What is that actually? It's actually just a small database. It's a collection of ones and zeros, which when translated, turn into 
language on a screen at the user interface that um, people understand and that they create that content. Okay. So we harvest documents and documents, by the way, are the easiest thing to understand because documents are still um, to some degree, the uh, structure around which trials are conducted, right? You put witnesses on the stand, you show them their documents, you demonstrate um, a series of events um, through, through proof of those events, which is contained in documents. You ask the witnesses about the documents, you ask the jury, to draw inferences about the intent of people as they're recording these things, um, you ask them to accept or not accept, as the case may be, the truth of things that are written about in those documents, right? Um, but documents in, in the new paradigm, they're just a small data set and they're a snapshot. You have to think about uh, the new evidentiary paradigm, I think, this way. You have documents, which is sort of one dimension, right? Flat screen, you see the text that people wrote. And again, uh, Going back to Braveheart, you know, those those documents are inherently unreliable because the people that wrote them are inherently unreliable. Okay. Um, in fact, I am I am in, in most instances least interested in documents, in the content that people wrote. What I'm really interested in as an investigator is figuring out what happened. Sometimes what people wrote about it, um, you can rely on. Sometimes they wrote about it with with uh, some other ulterior motive, and what they put down on paper is not true. And documents, by the way, are viewed by the federal rules of evidence as inherently unreliable. They are hearsay. Unless they fall within an exemption of the definition of hearsay or an exception um, from the hearsay rule, they're not separately admissible. So we look at documents as, as for what they're worth, right? Understanding that they uh, bear um, many of the same fallibilities that their human witnesses who created them do. What I want to know about is the metadata surrounding those documents, file metadata, application metadata. I want to see those documents over time in their system, in their native habitat, so that we can see how this particular data set, we'll call it a document again, how it operates uh, in its native environment, again, over time. Because what we're attempting to do is figure out what the organizational conduct was over time. And a document is really no, nothing, no better than a, than a snapshot, than a photograph. And a photograph doesn't tell a story. You know, you put them all together and you've got a movie, right? Same thing with um, with documents. You put them all together, see how they're how they were created, see how they were interacted with in the client systems. So you're looking at metadata, you're looking at logging systems, you're looking, in other words, at both unstructured data and at structured data. And the point of the SIU um, is to take all of that data plus information that you've gotten from witnesses, I'm gonna call that testimonial data, and you plug all that into tools that help you see patterns, see trends, see the bigger picture, see what the organizational conduct was over time when you put all of those points of reference uh, in a in a system. And what we have done at the SIU, to finally get around to answering your question, is we've created a fusion center inside IDS. And in that fusion center, we take all the data, we take the structured data, we take the unstructured data, and turn it into structured data, in essence, so that we can compare apples to apples, oranges to oranges, and see the organizational conduct through the data over time. That fusion center uses advanced analytics that are available in, in both um, commercially available and proprietary tools. And we, we chunk all of that data into that engine and have our analysts do the, um, uh, uh, do the intelligence work on it to actually turn that from raw evidentiary, uh, raw electronic evidence into curated, actionable intelligence so that the counsel and client can decide what tactics to employ, what strategies um, to employ, and have some idea, you know, what actually happened in fact. I, I will say that probably critical to uh, emphasize here, everything I'm talking about in terms of the Special Investigations Unit, we're actually trying to figure out what happened, Jonathan. 
And we want to know the objective truth of what happened. And I understand, as a former trial lawyer, that the truth in our adversarial system of justice depends on who you represent. Right? So as a criminal defense lawyer, for example, I don't have the same job as a prosecutor um, or, or as I did when I was a prosecutor. The prosecutor, ostensibly, is attempting to determine what the objective truth is because justice depends on it. The criminal defense lawyers don't have that same that same role. By definition, a criminal defense lawyer is taking the evidence and arguing inferences um, reasonably to be drawn from that evidence in the light most favorable to their client. And I call that advocacy truth as opposed to objective truth. Really important to understand here that what I'm talking about with SIU, we're trying to find out what actually happened. We're trying it's, to figure yeah, out objective truth. It is, it is the, uh, what did the data say? Not to yeah. what the person or people say, what does the data says? And to your point earlier that, that not just witnesses lie, people lie. People lie. Data yes. doesn't, data doesn't lie. Data yeah. is, you know, if, if it's good data, that's your zeros and ones. If it's bad data, it's bad because it's corrupt. Not, well, yeah. I guess a liar could also be corrupt, but the data is corrupt and can potentially be yeah. recaptured. The way I like to think about it, you know, I transitioned from war prisoner interrogator to uh, criminal defense investigator to prosecutor. And in the end of my days as a prosecutor, because I was investigating organized crime that, um, that for one focused on computer crimes, I became enamored with power of digital evidence. And what I say is, look, people lie. Data doesn't. Data can be made to mislead, but it never lies. And in the era of deep fakes, incredibly important, you know, to be able to tell the difference between uh, reliable data and unreliable data. Interesting. Let me ask you uh, this next question. Um, you know, I was a practicing attorney for a number of years. I, I laugh every time I say that, Bill, practicing attorney. You weren't good enough, Jonathan. You passed the bar. You got admitted to the bar. Uh, you passed the bar exam, you got admitted to the bar and you were still practicing. And after nine years, you didn't figure it out. I guess so. But why they call it, it's why they call it practice. There you go. Um, and I got into the world of e-discovery in 2005, just before the federal rules were updated to explicitly address uh, electronically stored information. I, I'm going to assume safely that a number of our listeners uh, spend time in the uh, e-discovery space. And so the question for you is, how does SIU work fit in with the more conventional concept of e-discovery? I think it's a great question. And, and candidly, it's one of the value propositions that the SIU and IDS bring more generally. E-discovery is, or has been for most of the last 15 years, primarily designed to capture documents, the old evidentiary paradigm, right? People used to sit in offices and they used to prepare documents. And when I conducted internal investigations back in the 90s, working for a large corporate law firm, first thing we did is we went and gathered their documents. And generally, that meant we went to their offices and we actually picked up boxes full of files. Those files then had to be had to be prepared. We had to bait stamp the documents. We had to copy the documents. And at some point, while I was still with this large law firm in Washington, D.C., I saw the creation of the first litigation database, which was just a collection of the copies, digitized copies of all of these documents. That's just not true anymore. Uh, although e-discovery has been largely commoditized and its principal purpose is to gather documents for review by attorneys as they are investigating cases and preparing to make their case in court or frankly, you know, in settlement negotiations 95% of the time. But, you know, you always want, you always assume that the case is going to trial because if you don't, <clears throat> you're giving up leverage during settlement negotiations. But 
lawyers and law firms and the e-discovery platforms are fantastic <clears throat> at making documentary evidence, unstructured data, ex uh, accessible to lawyers who are investigating the case. Increasingly, <clears throat> forms of structured data like text message data and other application data, which is stored natively in devices that, um, that create it, in database form is making its way onto the discovery platforms. A great example would be text messages <clears throat> in the relativity, relativity short message format uh, uh, file type, which has been created in order to make text messages, which are harvested normally in database form, uh, usable in court when you show text messages to a witness, right? That's what e-discovery um, tools generally are being used for. They're expanding and they're getting better at handling the structured data, but it's not principally what they're designed to do. And that's because principally databases don't get introduced in evidence in court. It, it, it directly flows from the nature of court proceedings. What the SIU does is it takes evidence, electronic evidence from every source, not just documents. And, when, and with documents, as, as noted, we focus on the metadata, we focus on the systems data, we focus on the logging data so that we can understand the documents in their native environment over time. I call that four-dimensional discovery, right? Great. Great to see a document. Great to see that somebody wrote something on paper once, but I want to know more about that document. I want to know everybody who touched it. If it's a critical document, right, this doesn't apply to every single document in the case. And frankly, at a real trial, you know, less than, less than 100 documents are critical documents um, um, in that trial, in, in most trials, by the way. But what we do in the SIU, <clears throat> again, leveraging all of the subject, subject matter expertise in our company, we analyze data from every source, not just documents, but communications data, not just communications data, but logging information. We use uh, systems inside the company that are stored in structured data, and we harmonize them with the unstructured data to figure out what actually happened. All of that data sitting in its uh, original environment, and sometimes, by the way, sitting in third-party applications. Sometimes we have to go outside of corporate internal um, or corporate uh, IT environments to go find data, which is created by the company, but isn't stored at the company, right? Increasingly, that's true with, with, um, with web-based uh, or cloud-based evidence. The point of the SIU is to take all of that and fold it into an analytical process, which we call Fusion Analytics, in our, what we call our Fusion Center, in order to make the EDRM, the Electronic Discovery Reference Model, real. And one of the things that um, that we are trying to persuade uh, counsel and clients of is that the EDRM, which is now a fixture in electronic discovery, it is the reference model. It is the model that everybody thinks of, right? And it goes from left to right. And it starts with information governance and it ends with presentation of evidence at trial. We conceive of the EDRM not as a line, but as a circle. And we come in with the SIU repeatedly, iteratively, um, we don't come in and gather all of the evidence at once. We gather just the evidence which appears to be relevant based on what we know at the time that we start gathering data. And by the way, that's important because you don't want to gather any more data than you have to gather because you don't want to put um, a place upon attorneys the duty of, of reviewing that, of that data unless they have to. It's very expensive to over-collect. We like to over-preserve and collect just, just um, and, and, and analyze just the right amount of data. So, so we, we come in um, we overlay SIU services on top of the EDRM. We start before the EDRM begins, right? Um, and sometimes information information governance at, at companies in the United States, you know, is sometimes extremely mature and, and sometimes it's not mature at all. Sometimes we come into companies that don't have 
um, um, sophisticated or even skeletal information governance systems. And in fact, when we're there, we make recommendations about how they should be doing information governance differently. So the next time they have problems, they don't have the same problem gathering the data that they have now. So we over we overlay our services on the EDRM. It, we we come back. It's an iterative process, a circular process, not left to right. Um, and uh, we essentially handle the data that law firms, lawyers, and e-discovery platforms are really not equipped uh, to handle um, in order to give meaning to the documents that are going to make the uh, the corpus of evidence for a, for a particular litigation or a trial. Got it. Well, you, you used the word hearsay earlier in the podcast, and so I'm going to throw the other favorite term of us lawyers, which is privilege. And uh, we'll put it into the last question of this podcast, because I'm sure we will have future podcasts covering the world of SIU. So here's the question. If SIU is conceived to be a team working hand in glove with counsel under privilege, what happens if counsel and client need expert testimony at a hearing or trial? Well, I'm glad you asked. The, the purpose of the SIU is to provide consultation on electronic evidence principally, um, really all facts, but converted into electronic evidence for the purpose of trial preparation, litigation strategy, underprivilege um, with communications with counsel and, and the client protected by privilege, right? This is its work product. It's, <clears throat> it's designed to find the facts in, a, in an environment where we can freely communicate with counsel about what is and what isn't the truth, what is and what isn't the evidence, and frankly, what, what to do or not to do about the legal risk that is posed by that particular situation. That means, by by the way, we're we're non we're non testifying consultants. We're non testifying experts. Um, as you know, frequently IDS gets contacted um, for the first time by a client or by counsel because they believe that they need an expert witness to testify at trial about specific uh, kinds of electronic evidence. And um, and we of course do that as well. But that's not what the SIU is to do. We are really fact witnesses. Um, who testify, um, uh, who are prepared to testify if need be about what we did, about the facts we gathered, about the evidence that we gathered. Um, uh, and we are not uh, going to be testifying as experts at trial. What we like to do um, is we uh, do all of that under privilege. If a specific expert is needed for expert testimony, opinion testimony at trial or litigation, we actually set up different matters. We create an ethics wall inside the company. And then we let counsel work with the expert who's going to testify on the set of facts um, uh, that is going to be the subject of testimony, usually a subset of what we have done. If that makes sense. It does. It does. Well, I want to thank Bill for joining us today, uh, as well as our regular subscribers and those who may be first time listeners. If you'd like to learn more about IDS or want to subscribe to our IDS Talks podcast, you can visit IDSinc.com or wherever you normally get your podcasts from. If you want to talk more about SIU, much like Coach Prime, Bill ain't hard to find. You can get his uh, contact information from uh, the website, IDSinc.com. By the way, Scobuffs. Um Thank you again for spending time with us. I look forward to talking more about data with you on our next edition of IDS Talks. Have a good one. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. 